So over the course of this retreat, Julie and I are weaving together several different strands of the Buddha's teachings, bringing them into our meditation practice. So as we were doing this morning, Julie oriented us to some of the different meditation approaches in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishments of mindfulness. And in the afternoons, most of the time we'll start with a short talk to introduce a particular aspect of the retreat theme, which is the Four Noble Truths, so that we can then explore that together in our relational meditation practice. Then in the evenings, we'll have a Dharma talk where we'll go into some of these themes in more detail and more depth. So this afternoon, we're going to start diving into the Four Noble Truths in a way that makes these core teachings an actual practice to explore, both in the relational meditation that we'll be doing soon and in your daily life practice during the rest of the retreat. In fact, for the whole rest of your life. So as many of you know, the Four Noble Truths are really at the heart of the Buddha's teachings. And pretty much everything he taught over the 45 years of his teaching career can be fitted into one or more of those truths. Now tomorrow night, Julie's going to go into these in some detail. So for now, I just want to give us a brief summary to get us started. So the first Noble Truth is a very simple statement usually commonly translated simply as there is dukkha. Now, dukkha is the Pali word that's usually translated into English as suffering, but it's a lot more nuanced than that, as we'll see. For now, just to say that it includes not only the most intensely painful aspects of life, which we might normally label as suffering, but also the more subtle, even existential aspects of life that we can think of as a kind of generalized unsatisfactoriness. So for myself, I often translate dukkha with four words, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering, to try to cover the whole spectrum of what the Buddha was actually referring to. So dukkha is unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. So the first noble truth, there is dukkha. The second noble truth, also very simple. There is a cause of dukkha. The third noble truth, again very simple. There is an end of dukkha. And the fourth noble truth, there is a path that leads to this end of dukkha, namely the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, it's possible on hearing these four very short, pithy statements about dukkha and its ending that it might sound so condensed as to be quite abstract and it might be hard to understand that what the Buddha is offering here is a set of practices In fact, a way of living, a way of life that orients us towards increasing ease, happiness, peace and freedom, also known as nibbana, nirvana or awakening. 
So it could be helpful just to have a bit of context of how, for how these truths came to be presented the way they were. So partly it's because in India of the Buddha's day, writing wasn't used very much. So the teachings were transmitted orally through hearing, through memorizing, through reciting. And this is one reason why there are so many numbered lists throughout the discourses. It was a device that helped us to learn the key points of the teachings, whether those were spiritual teachings or actually any form of learning. Then specifically in terms of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha was apparently borrowing from a model that already existed in the India of his time, a medical model that was used to treat disease. So in that medical model, the first step was to diagnose or identify the disease. And in terms of the Four Noble Truths, this is the diagnosis of the First Noble Truth. There is dukkha. There is unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. This is our disease or dis-ease. And then the second step in the model is to identify what was causing the disease. So this equates to the second noble truth. There is a cause of dukkha. And that cause is named as craving, thirsting, or tanha, to use the Pali word. The third step in the medical model is to work out a cure for the disease. And this gives us the third noble truth. There is an end of dis-ease. Full health is possible through letting go of craving. And then the fourth and the final step in the medical model is to recommend a treatment to bring about this cure. In other words, to give a prescription. And this equates to the fourth noble truth. There is a path that leads to the end of suffering, namely the noble eightfold path. Now this path, as many of you know, is a very holistic prescription. It works on many different aspects of our lives. And I'm not going to go into detail about all of them now, but just as a reminder for context, the eight factors of this path are right or wise view, right or wise intention or thought, right or wise speech, right or wise action, right or wise livelihood, right or wise effort, right or wise mindfulness, and right or wise samadhi, sometimes translated as concentration, but gatheredness, unification of mind. So the point of this, by using this medical model, the Buddha was clearly uh, saw that what he was offering was a form of healing. And in some Buddhist traditions, he is referred to as the great healer, healing not physical ailments so much as our existential disease or dis-ease, the unskillful ways that we habitually relate to suffering. So these teachings in the Four Noble Truths are intended to help us heal ourselves of that disease. They're not concerned about philosophical debates or mystical theories about the world or the ultimate nature of reality. As the Buddha said elsewhere, I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. 
And these four noble truths are the powerful framework that help us to do that. So this afternoon, to begin that process of turning the Four Noble Truths into actual practices to explore, I'm going to begin by zooming in just a little more closely to the First Noble Truth. And I'd like to read you the definition from a translation by Nyanamoli Tara of this First Noble Truth. Suffering as a Noble Truth is this. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair are suffering. Association with the loathed is suffering. Dissociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, suffering is the five categories of clinging aggregates. Got it? So there's a vast amount of teaching in just that one paragraph. So to keep it manageable within that first noble truth, I'm going to focus just on the very last part of it, that reference to the five clinging aggregates. Now, again, I don't want to get bogged down into too much detail. We're going to be coming back to this. For now, the piece I want you to keep in mind is the reference to clinging. So this term clinging aggregates is a technical term. And it refers to five categories of experience that we tend to cling to, to hold on to, to identify with. In other words, to take personally and construct a fixed sense of self out of. And the Buddha recognized this tendency of clinging and identifying as a key way that we add to our own suffering. So these five aggregates are five heaps or bundles of experience that we tend to cling to and identify with. And they are material form, including the body, feeling tone, perception, volitional mental formations, and consciousness. And again, you don't need to keep them all in mind. You don't need to understand all of them right now. We'll be posting this information in our drive folder. But again, it's the clinging that's the issue, not the things themselves that are inherently a problem. So what is meant by clinging in this context? It's really shorthand for any kind of holding on, grasping, craving or identifying with experience, taking it personally, making it define me, who I am. It also includes any kind of resistance to experience, pushing away, rejecting, avoiding, denying it. So in a way, clinging is a kind of an umbrella term for any kind of reactivity or struggle, either for or against any experience. So in case that's sounding still quite abstract, just to give you a quick, simple example. 
We can see clinging in action in the ways we commonly talk about, particularly our afflictive emotions and mind states, if we have no mindfulness training. So for someone who has no understanding of the teachings, if they're experiencing, say, anger, they might talk about it something like this. I'm furious. I can't believe he did that. How dare he patronize me like that? I'm so angry. I'm not his secretary. I deserve better treatment than that. I should report him to HR. But they'll only side with him. This always happens to me. So I'm interested, as you heard that, did you notice any physical response in your body? Even as I said it, I could feel my own body just slightly stiffening, bracing, tensing. That's an example of clinging and how we can feel it in the body when we pay attention. The opposite of clinging, which is what of all this practice is aiming for, is release. And I'm using the word release to refer to letting go, allowing, non-identification, non-entanglement, non-struggle with experience. In other words, freedom. And through our insight practice, this release happens on deeper and deeper levels, ultimately leading all the way to the complete freedom of Nibbana or awakening. But coming back to an ordinary everyday example of how we might orient towards release instead of clinging, as we just heard, even the language that we use can either reinforce this clinging and identification or support its release. So coming back to the, that same example that I just gave where the person was pretty identified with their anger, it's possible to know a similar experience but relate to it internally in a completely different way. And so then it might sound something more like this. Oh, intense anger arising, heat in the face, mm, tension in the jaw, clenching of the hands. Yep, anger is like this. Not liking it is like this. Buzzing thoughts coming up. Blaming feels like this. Self-righteousness is like this. Making space for it is like this. Ah, a moment of relief being known. So again, did you hear the difference between those two examples? Possibly in that second example, you might have noticed a bit less tension in your body and mind as you heard me describing the experience of anger with less clinging and identification. <clears throat> so one very direct way of practicing with these Four Noble Truths, then, is to simplify them into just these two aspects, two movements, two fundamental experiences of clinging and release. So in this way, we can practice with these Four Noble Truths at any moment throughout the day, whenever we remember to notice these movements of clinging and release that are probably happening over and over 
without us consciously recognizing them. So even as you sit here right now, you might notice if there is hopefully some subtle sense of unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, stress, distress. You might notice maybe some slight discomfort in the body somewhere. And you might notice the heart and mind and if there's some restlessness or anxiety. And when we tune in, we can notice that there's often some slight sense of unsatisfactory, unsatisfactoriness somewhere in our experience. But if there's no awareness, we often consciously strengthen that by either identifying with it, clinging to it, or resisting it. So the earlier we can catch that chain reaction from simply registering unsatisfactoriness to the tendency to struggle with it, the easier it is to move to release, from clinging to release. So that's really the overarching theme of this retreat, both in our formal meditation and in our daily lives at home. In any moment, you can ask, right now, is there some kind of clinging? And if so, can it release? That's the key question that we'll be exploring over these next nine days.